you create a response plan, you get it going, maybe you do a tabletop or two, but once you have a real incident, you need to utilize it. That's when you figure out if there are any holes that you didn't get to fill as a part of your testing. And, uh, and it also drives a lot of education for all of your stakeholders that come into an issue and an incident. They now have a better understanding of who's gonna do what and when. And there, there's a trust, there's a bond that goes into you. When you've gone through something tough like this with these people, it just further solidifies the connections that are made there. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my very good friend and colleague, Rhea Spinoza. Ray has over 20 years of technology experience. He's held CISO and security leadership positions at several technology companies, including Amazon, Proofpoint, Cisco, and eBay. When I met Ray, we were both working at eBay. I can't believe that was 15 years ago. At the time, Ray led the front-end infrastructure team, and I was working in InfoSec policy and compliance. A couple of years later, Ray built out the Global Information Security Response Function, and we worked together on Dave Colonnane's team. Today, I really could not be more pleased that Ray is our head of security at Cobalt.io. I've literally been trying to get Ray on Humans of InfoSec for years now, and here we are. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. I'm excited to be here. Me too. So one of the things that I love about this podcast is that when I talk with friends of mine, sometimes I find out new things about them. And so we'll see what comes up today. So here's one thing I don't know about you. I don't know about Ray Espinoza as a little kid. Can you tell (laughs) me and our listeners, what were you like as a kid? Um... I like to think that I was fairly similar to the personality that I have today. Um, I had a big heart. I felt like I was always the protector. I loved being around people and uh, I loved trying to find ways to make different situations inclusive for everybody around me. Uh, I enjoyed having lots of friends and I felt like that was the most meaningful impact that I could make as a child was to try to get as many people involved, make people feel good about being around and being engaged. And I feel like it's something that's carried over to me as an adult, uh, which has been pretty cool now that I think about it. That is very cool. And, you know, Ray, I'm I'm very fortunate to also know your family. um, And I can say that I distinctly observe that uh, in the in the ways that your children act too, uh, which is super cool. Ray, how did you get interested in computer science? So I'd have to say that it goes back to uh, the influence of my father. Uh, he was a mechanical engineer and had worked a number of different types of technology jobs, mostly around you know engineering. And I mean, his, his real passion and his focus was really around mechanical engineering. But I distinctly remember being a young child and having him bring his computer home. And I think it was running a version of DOS. And it was, um, he was trying to explain to me what it does. He was showing me how to view the directory of files and how cool that was. And I remember just falling in love with the computer that you can actually play a computer game on it and that had some sort of graphics. I think the things that I had seen and heard about up until that point were really more text-based games. And uh, that sounded cool, but it felt a lot like reading, which I wasn't uh, 
super jazzed about early on uh, as a child and uh, learned to love later as an adult. But um, it was always, my dad always approached it in a sense where it was, it was fun, it was safe, and it was important for me to learn. Uh, he explained to me how computers work from the time you turn it on up until the point where you log in and you use it. And uh, it was always a, a bit of a fascination. That carried on through middle school and high school where he allowed me to continue to use a computer. He felt like it was important for me to get comfortable with it. And then the internet sort of happens and you have these uh, dial-up uh, internet service providers. We had internet at home. I was one of the few early on who was able to use that. And of course, I started off in the um, the online chat space just to kind of listen in. I'm, one of my favorite bands growing up was Pearl Jam. And I thought, well, how cool. Maybe I can find a chat room where other fans of Pearl Jam are just talking about random stuff. And wouldn't that be cool? Because I have no idea who these people are. And uh, that all played into like, the computer is cool. The computer is interesting. And um, my dad was sort of that bridge from getting, uh, making it easy to approach and to understand. And it ended up affecting me into one of my first jobs that was not uh, fast food. And it enabled me to kind of find my way into IT. And I didn't realize that until, I, again, I, I had that chance to reflect back. But uh, my dad has been the biggest influence of making it easy for me to understand and making it interesting at, uh, at every point in my life. Very cool. Very cool. Tell me about what it was like for you when you were studying computer science. So computer science to me, uh, when I first chose it and decided to go to Cal Poly, I'll admit, I didn't have a good understanding of what computer science was. I had seen the movie Toy Story when I was 16. I think it was my 16th birthday. And I remember thinking computer animation is so cool. Like I would love to, to do uh, animation for movies because clearly it's the future. And um, Cal Poly had a computer animation course that was an, an upper division course in computer science. So I thought, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go ahead and give that a try. Uh, I got to Cal Poly and it turned out to be a bunch of like real programming and it was still pretty introductory. We were focused around C and I remember thinking, getting through my basics class and getting a C and I'm like, wow, I don't know if I'm really, if I really kind of grasp this and, and if I'm really interested in it. And then fast forward to the next quarter and I'm like, I, I don't know how much I enjoy this, but I'm going to continue to push through it. And I started to fall out of love with it. And immediately I started to think, well, man, it would be great to still have some sort of technical uh, understanding here in school, but also focus around business. And at that point, I had other friends that lived in the dorms that were um, uh, MIS majors, and it was more of a, a business focus, or it was a business degree with the technology focus. And it was sort of like the bridge that I was looking for and was something that um, I was going to continue to pursue until life happened to me. And uh, I became a father. And uh, finished out my year in college and then left for home to uh, to be there for my firstborn. Very cool. I am a huge fan of your firstborn, side note. You know, it's so interesting for me to hear you describe your experiences learning computer science, because when I met you and you were running front-end infrastructure at eBay, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like this guy is literally running this company and keeping the website up. I think we had some really nutso numbers uh, when it came to stuff like availability. Like, like how many nines was it? And what can you talk a little bit about sort of the scale of what it meant to run front-end infrastructure at a company like eBay? 
first when I think back, I mean, it's, I think back fondly, it was such a fun time. And, you know, the gravity of the responsibility that was on um, my shoulders, my team's shoulders, I think was huge. I was able to join as a front-end infrastructure engineer and then move up to team lead and then to manager. And throughout that time, it was interesting to see eBay's growth and popularity grow. Uh, We would see these huge numbers, you know, getting back to your point, I want to say with maybe like five nines of availability that we ultimately got to. And I think it started off maybe three nines, 99.9% uptime. And when you look at the type of money that eBay made and the fact that they would lose money every second that they were down, that was huge. And I think there was a lot of responsibility and it was pretty empowering and also humbling at the same time that myself and my team, we had direct impact on keeping the service up and running, building for redundancy, allowing things to scale, especially at peak when we would have you know these huge events that would drive lots of traffic. It was huge. It was fun. It was exciting. And you know, I, I look back and I uh, there's a few things that I think are really cool about my time being in the infrastructure team at eBay. Uh, one of them is I, I built the first Windows servers that were used for uh, api.ebay.com. And eBay had one of the first uh, APIs on the internet. And the fact that I, I built those servers in the data center, got the operating system running, got uh, worked with our teams to get code running, and then got them into production. That part is pretty cool. And you know, when you think about it, and I look back, and that's definitely uh, one of the things that I felt was uh, was huge is that the the work that we did directly impacted millions of people, and that in itself I think was was really cool. There's not a lot of folks out there who can say, you know, um, I directly what I worked on today affected millions of people, and um, you know, it's it's pretty humbling, and and it was a great experience, and and it gave me a strong sense of ownership of everything that we do. We have to be really careful. We have to be very methodical, and we need to make sure that uh, there are no corners cut because availability affected our overall organization's goals, and that could affect bonus, and it also can affect millions of people around the world. And when you start to, you grow attached to these people who use eBay, uh, as well as everybody else who's there trying to keep the uh, the website up and running, um, all, all that um, you know was uh, was really humbling and really fun to be a part of. Yep. I, you know, hearing you talk about growing attached to eBay buyers and sellers, I remember the live user conferences that we used to go to, uh, eBay live and just seeing, you know, enormous conference center, you know, ballrooms filled of people who, you know, this was the way that they were making their living. This is the way that they were changing their lives. And I, I remember, even at that time, like it felt so cool to really be helping people. Absolutely. I felt the very uh, same types of feelings of, of what we do really matters. What we do really does positively impact people's lives. I mean, they're able to make a living off of this marketplace platform that we've built. And it's our responsibility to make sure that they can continue to make a living. That responsibility, I think, added a lot a lot of importance to the job outside of there were definitely days where I felt like, oh man, another outage. Uh, we have to jump in and figure out what's going wrong. You know, there are days, you know, where it's a bit taxing uh, mentally, but when you get back to why is this important, that, that why is pretty strong. So it sounds to me like, you know, running front end infrastructure at eBay, pretty cool, very important. What was it that made you decide or even consider joining and leading security response? How did you think about that pivot? How did you come to that decision? Great question. So 
I had always been interested in security. I think the first security book that I ever read was uh, Hacking Exposed. Uh, I know that Hamansha Davidi, a uh, fantastic person, I think a friend of both of us, uh, was one of the co-authors of that book. And it made it so cool. I wanted to better understand how can my infrastructure be attacked? What are things that I should care about as an infrastructure manager and owner of, uh, of all of this infrastructure? And how can I just learn more? Because security seems so cool. It was another category of information that I really wanted to wrap my head around because there was a lot of fun and excitement around it. And I think uh, that led to me being partial to doing any security-related work with the folks that were a part of the information security team, uh, partnering with them around what we're doing to secure the front end. I remember going through our PCI audit and doing some of the PCI readiness for some of the billing infrastructure that we had. And I always enjoyed my interactions with any of the folks from the InfoSec team and always wanted to learn more from them. While I was showing them what we were doing, on the front end infrastructure side, what else should I be thinking about and what else should I be doing? Sometimes the questions were like, I don't know, let's just focus on the task right now and we'll, we'll talk about this later. And I'm like, ah, okay. Um, so I think there was a lot of genuine interest to start, but the conversation that I had uh, with a friend of both of ours, Chad Green, who was leading some of the technical responsibilities for the security team at the time, um, he and I had a chance to work together and he approached me and said, you know, I need to build an incident response function the majority of incident response is knowing who to talk to and how to get folks to support what you need to get done. And that's hard for me to bring in somebody off the street and get them to find success immediately. They have to build all these new relationships and uh, figure out how things work. You already know that. You have relationships with IT. You have relationships in uh, eBay's infrastructure operations. And you know how everything works because you've been here for seven years. We would love for you to come and uh, build Incident Response Forest from scratch and be a part of this Rockstar team. And it was right at that moment where I felt like on the infrastructure side, it almost started to feel a bit like Groundhog's Day, this Bill Murray movie where he wakes up every day and he sort of relives the same day over and over. And so he continues to try to do things differently to see if he can come to some sort of different outcome. But he wakes up and it's the same song, the same day over again. I have a little bit of that feeling of we have um, similar issues, but the variables change every day. And I'd love to find additional purpose. I started to lose my why that was so strong early on in my career. And that was still really important. I wasn't able to connect emotionally uh, as much uh, to that. And so I felt like this conversation was like perfect timing. I said, absolutely, let's do it. And I was able to join Chad's team and build that incident response and security monitoring function from scratch. And lo and behold, it was the greatest decision that I made in my career into uh, developing this additional passion for security that has just stayed with me since. And just having that opportunity and being sort of right place and having some of that experience, I think, made it an easy decision for Chad to bring me on, uh, but also, you know, helped uh, to show him that I'm capable of learning, I'm capable of running you know, issues and incidents, which is really important for incident response and security monitoring. But it was, uh, it was like a positive Pandora's box of once he allowed me to kind of see what security can be, uh, you know, it was sort of a no brainer. And I remember looking back after my first year in InfoSec uh, at eBay and thinking, I'm so happy. This is bringing me so much joy. I'm learning so much. And I'm still positively impacting uh, eBay and uh, the marketplace and its sellers. And, um, and uh, you know, it was probably one of the best times that I had uh, in my life on that team. Way to go, Chad. I'm just, you know, my mind is just 
meandering down memory lane. And, you know, I'm thinking about those times when like we and Chad and Scott Lewis and Jen Lesser and Chris Winter would all go to lunch together. And depending on like how much time we had for lunch, you know, we'd choose our restaurant and there were these spicy tacos that were super good. And at that time in my life, I hadn't really developed a spice tolerance. So I would just tag along with the group and my face would get red and sweaty and I would be so happy, even though I was really ugly. And, and, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just such a great group of people. Um, and I'm so, I'm also so grateful for that time and for that team. That's awesome. I, I have tons of fond memories very similar to that. Uh, I remember those same types of going out for lunches and uh, and being a part of a bona fide A-team where everybody was really strong. Uh, everybody was just fantastic to be around. Uh, something that I, f- I felt that, uh, that we have here at Cobalt that I really enjoy is that, you know, you can grab a drink, you can grab food with just about everybody and genuinely enjoy conversation. Uh, I had no idea how special that was. And, uh, and it was fantastic to be a part of, uh, of that team. So Ray, it wasn't all fun. <laughs> and Ray, I wonder if there's anything that you can talk about, we had an incident or two, um, and some of them were big and complex and, you know, really interesting. Um, and I wonder if there's a way that you can share a little bit about what that was like for you with our listeners to go through some of those uh, pretty intense experiences. Absolutely. I'll do my best to try not to attribute, you know, any of these issues to really any of these organizations, because really that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you were able to find some of these issues, work through them and, and learn from them, which were huge. Um, one of the one of the first uh, big issues that I felt was sort of the golden fleece. When you're an incident responder, you want to work on a big, a big issue. And while it may be painful to go through, um, it's something that really helps develop your career. And, you know, and so we have that opportunity at a company that I had worked at where I was running incident response where we had an adjacent business unit that was somewhere else in the world and um, they weren't fully integrated on the security side on the technology side they were sort of acquired and then left to sort of run uh, as we uh, as they were and we were able to provide some security guidance and, and oversight on a limited basis with the plan to continue to grow. That business unit had an outsourced IT provider who had set up some of their technology. Unfortunately, when they set up the database uh, for that business unit's application, they didn't change the default credentials for the database. And to make matters worse, the firewall that was used to protect that infrastructure hadn't really been set up to actually block any of that information. It was, it was set up with a sort of an any-any rule, which is essentially anything can come in, anything can go out. And uh, that led to the perfect storm of all of the information that was in that business unit's database had been completely stolen. And it wasn't until um, the threat actors who had stolen that information contacted that business unit and said, hey, we have all of your information. We want some money for it. And at that point, there was that um, oh crap moment where they then start to work through and figure out what can we do. And it was at that point that they reached out to the information security team and and brought us into the loop and said, hey, um, this is going on. What do we need to do? And at that point, the incident response plan was spun up. We had tons of folks engaged. And I think at the time that we first started our triage and initial engagement, there were probably like 18 to 20 people 
in this war room trying to understand what had happened and what are we going to do about it. That started what turned out to, I think, be two to three weeks of nearly around-the-clock work of figuring out what do we know, how did this happen? Because at the time that we got this information that all of your data has been stolen, they didn't tell us how they actually did it because that would have been awesome. Uh, they did because we would have been able to respond much more quickly. So we were starting from ground zero and trying to figure out, was this an application vulnerability? Was this an infrastructure vulnerability? Was this some sort of clever hack that we don't even understand how this works yet, but we need to dig in and figure this out? And working through mobilizing all of these different folks, having us focus on each different areas to start to rule out what may have happened and what uh, hasn't, that allowed us to really shape um, and understand and put the pieces together of this puzzle. And I mean, one of the most important things, we're thinking about it from two separate tracks. We're thinking about how do we recover and get this business unit back to a functional state where they feel good about the data they have, the data that's in their database is still whole and safe and unaltered and we limit the impact of the data that's been stolen. Uh, it can't be monetized. It can't be uh, used for nefarious purposes. And so we're trying to think about all of those in the same sense, but, but it's, it's two tracks. How do we remediate them quickly and make them stronger than what they were before? And then how do we continue to better understand how the heck this happened? Because we're going to have to help our leadership explain to their leadership what had happened, what we're doing about it. And um, over a series of, multi of several weeks, as well as having folks from our office in um, overseas into uh, into this business unit's uh, office to be able to work sort of boots on the ground, so to speak, that enabled us to be able to uh, shape these stories and better understand how this happened. And we did find out uh, it was a misconfigured database and a misconfigured firewall, but we also found out tons of other holes or issues that other threat actors or this threat actor group could have utilized to um, to cause this breach. And it was extremely painful. You know, I remember my wife being sick at the same time early on and struggling uh, with trying to make sure that she was healthy and taking care of the kids and then trying to figure out how we managed through this incident. But, um, you know, getting back to it, it was really one of the most interesting issues because it gave me an opportunity right away to uh, really learn and go beyond some of the books that I had read and, you know, drive the investigation, drive remediation, and ultimately get them to a point where they're better than where they started. And uh, looking back, that was huge. It, it was fun. It was exciting, painful as we were going through it. But once we came out the other end, we were able to uh, celebrate getting them to a, a positive spot and knowing that we tested our response plan. It's one thing when we, you create a response plan, you get it going, uh, maybe you do a tabletop or two. But once you have a real incident, you need to utilize it. That's when you figure out if there are any holes that you didn't get to fill as a part of your testing. And, uh, and it also drives a lot of education for all of your stakeholders that come into an issue and an incident. They now have a better understanding of who's going to do what and when. And there, there's a trust. There's a bond that goes into you. When you've gone through something tough like this with these people, um, it just further solidifies the connections that are made there. Uh, you know, I've had somebody, there's a lot of folks that I found that I've worked with throughout my career career who have some sort of military background and have ended up in information security. And that also plays to some of the, the military lingo um, that's used in information security. But there was a, an individual that I had worked with uh, who was a Marine, and he had mentioned that working through a large-scale breach 
to him was very similar to seeing combat, but in a completely different way. In that when you work with a large scale breach, there's tons of uh, anxiety, there's frustration, uh, there's all of these really heightened emotions and feelings, everybody's super tired, um, but you get through it together and you're stronger on the other end. And he said that the only other time that he's felt that is when he's been in combat with, with other individuals and uh, you know, sort of building and solidifying that bond, that brotherhood. And now I know there may be some folks that don't uh, agree completely with that, but for that individual, it felt very real for him to be able to connect the two. And when I think about what that meant for me, those same relationships were solidified by going through something, you know, um, emotional and yeah, going through something, you know, uh, as large scale as that. So that I think I was really thankful to have experienced throughout my career uh, that really sort of set the stage for me to grow a lot more comfort into um, I can do incident response. I'm not just an infrastructure engineer and, and I can help drive our company through it and come out in the positive end. Wow. I mean, I, I feel adrenaline rushing through my body right now, just hearing you tell that story. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I think that some of our listeners know exactly what it's like to be in the middle of a big incident and responding to it, and others may not. Uh, and I think having that kind of window into a real practitioner's experience is extremely valuable. I know that you've got this experience, and so I have observed that when we do instant response tabletop exercises at Cobalt, everyone's paying attention. <laughs> you know, like everyone, everyone understands like, Ray has been there and done that. This is not theoretical. This is real. And it's, and it's just so cool uh, to see that brought to the table. Awesome. And it's so much fun to try to help folks understand what to expect. And I think that it, it helps to remind me that security is cool. Security can be fun. Um, not all of it is 100% cool and 100% fun. I think those of us who are practitioners who have been in the space for a while realize that. Um, but there, there are... There is something about trying to teach and help somebody understand uh, what their role is and establishing, you know, a, a sense of importance in them in dealing with a security issue. That part is, is huge. It's fun. I, I liken that to it's, it's part of the coach. It's part of the dad in me of, you know, if I can help people understand, I get so much enjoyment from that. But it it is also something really cool. Uh, a lot of people who don't completely understand. I remember being in that seat. I remember being them and just wanting to learn more. And as you start to talk through some of you know, these issues, if you start to figure out and imagine yourself being a part of working through a security incident, especially when there's not live bullets flying, so to speak, in a real live issue, it can be really fun. And uh, it's pretty engaging. And I do try to keep those uh, tabletop exercises as real as, as we can uh, for that reason. But they are a lot of fun. And and it, it does, you know, bring back, you know, that childlike joy of learning early on and just trying to take it all in and, and growing that interest even further. So, Ray, my understanding is that leading an incident, running a response function, that's really different from being responsible and being held accountable for an entire information security function. Can you share with our leaders, what was it like for you as you transitioned from overseeing a function within an information security team to leading information security teams as a CISO. 
Absolutely. As a practitioner and all the times that I have led or, uh, you know, has that I've been a part of incident response teams or have led them, I've always been a practitioner alongside of them. And it's something that I felt like I owed my team to show that I can do this with you. I support you. I'm empathetic to the work that you do. And that's just something that's always been a part of of my management style. And um, as I started to go from incident response manager to being a director of security, um, or you know, up to my first uh, uh, VP of security role, it forced me to take a step back and not think of things so much uh, hands on the keyboard and just the incident in front of us or just the metrics we need to think about as it pertains to incidents, but think about how do I up-level some of that message? What do, what do incidents tell us overall about our security posture and how do I help our stakeholders outside of security understand? I think that was the biggest difference for me was allowing myself to take a step back and sort of look to my left, to my right, at my peers, and what do I need to help them understand about security to add importance to our role, to help them understand our existing security posture, as well as how do I help our other business leaders um, further invest in our security programs so that we can continue to make them successful and we have the right amount of security for where we are in our business at our current time. And... um, and that is where I had sort of this, this next level of sort of like awakening intellectually of um, it was a whole new thing to learn. I was very good at being able to uh, talk shop and work through issues and, and contribute tactically. But now how do I, how do I up-level some of the messaging to help my peers understand and, and really drive influence or change? Um, when I was a manager of the incident response team, I had a fantastic CISO like Dave Colonane who was able to get us budget so that uh, I could get the tools that I needed. I could staff the teams the way that uh, we needed to so that I always had sort of like that short to midterm outcome. I was able to hit sort of those goals. And and it was interesting and exciting to learn about, well, how do I influence our CFO to help him understand that security is not just a a cost center uh, that takes up resources. We add value to the organization. We reduce risk to the organization. Uh, We make it easier for them to make money and to earn trust for our customers. I, I never had those same types of thoughts as an incident response manager, uh, and and it was fun and exciting to to have to learn how to to do that. And I think that's where I, I started to change some of my focus of how do I become a, a better leader? How do I start to think like an executive? How do I become an executive? And then what's important to executives? And and that part has been uh, fun. It's con- it's a continued journey that I'm on, and it's also slightly different at each organization. But I feel like if I approach things the way that I would approach um, all the other teams that I managed, it's with empathy to try to help them understand what's important, why it's important, and what we need. It hasn't really changed much. And once I realized that I can leverage some of my past experience with that, I just needed to learn some new lingo, but also ask different questions to help uh, help myself understand what's important to my stakeholders. Uh, and when I'm an incident responder, I can go back and say, this is the issue. This is what we found. It was caused by this. And uh, this is the outcome. I then had to keep my mouth shut and say, what's important to you? What do you need from me? How do I help show value to you? And as long as I ask those questions and genuinely listen, I was able to make sure that I can, I can find the words, I can find the data to bring that back to my stakeholders to drive the influence that we needed or get them bought in to, uh, to what we were trying to accomplish. And uh, I felt like that was the biggest transition and continues to be another really fun part of, um, of getting our stakeholders to understand why security is important and um, how do we keep that fresh in their mind. You know, it's so cool 
to hear you talk about yourself as a kid and then to hear you reflect on some of your more recent professional leadership experiences because I can see that it's just, it's all been so consistent. You know, the little kid with the big heart who wants to like develop relationships with people and and be inclusive, you know, I really see those personality attributes of your character and sort of just essentially the person that you are just coming out in you as a leader. You know, I think that I've observed different security leaders who they don't kind of get the the constituencies that they serve. You know, I've heard security leaders describe users and describe team members as stupid, you know, and that is just the opposite of the behavior that I see you doing uh, when you're engaging with teams. You know, what I've seen since you've come on board uh, at Cobalt is that team members, they reach out to you. They ask you questions. They tell you what's going on. They don't feel afraid about uh, telling you about a situation because they're not worried that you're going to shame them or tell them no or tell them that they can't do it. Um, And so it's just, it's just so cool to kind of see how this came together uh, for you uh, throughout your career journey. And, and thank you. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, I always felt like I was that person at some point. Um, I wasn't fully educated uh, on what I needed to know. Uh, there was still so much to learn. And so it, it would feel wrong for just me and personally in my heart to, uh, to try to judge somebody for that because, you know, surely I wouldn't want uh, somebody else who was trying to help educate me, you know, when um, I didn't completely understand security threats or I didn't understand the appropriate response. And uh, so I think um, empathy is something that's really core to, I think, who I am and what's helped me develop some of these connections. And I'm so thankful that I'm at a company who that supports that type of approach because it hasn't as much as, you know, my personality and I've really tried to stay consistent and I appreciate that observation. Um, there are places where it, it just didn't really fit in all that well, or it just didn't play well because there were other values. There were other traits, you know, that, that were, were valued a little bit higher. And, and so that's where it's helped to make me feel like Cobalt is, is the place that uh, I need to be because it brings out the best in me and it brings out, you know, it enables me to be the leader uh, that, that uh, I want to continue to be as I go forward. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to mention, uh, just along that same point, uh, Caroline, you and I have talked about, you know, how do we, how do we measure and drive change in the organization? Uh, I started a... Um, a survey early on in my tenure at Cobalt, where I asked uh, some basic questions uh, as a means to set a baseline uh, uh, for all of our users, uh, all of our employees here at Cobalt, because I wanted my, one of the most important things that I felt I was coming in um, that I was selling to all of the Cobalters here was that I'm going to help educate you. I'm going to help make security easy to understand, safe to talk about. And I wanted to have a measurable way to say, am I actually making this better? And we do that through a couple of of ways, but I felt the survey was the best way to to do that. And we asked basic questions like, I understand the threats I'm likely to face while working here at Cobalt. Uh, I'm confident spotting phishing emails. I know how to report an incident. And 
you know, security is important. Um, I believe Cobalt's information security team is working on the right things at the right time. And um, by asking those questions and establishing a baseline, we went back um, here recently over the last month, month and a half and asked those same questions. And we saw huge improvement. Uh, we went from 58% to 93% confident that um, Cobalters are understand the types of threats they're likely to face and how to respond. Uh, we went from 78% confident to 100% confident that they could find and spot phishing emails, uh, 51% to 89% of how to report an incident, and um, up to 88% of Cobalters feel that this information security team is working on the right things at the right time. Those were um, hugely validating for us that I'm being as transparent as I said I wanted to coming in. I'm driving education, and it's having an impact. People feel like they're grasping some of these concepts, and, uh, and we have a measurable way to show it. Uh, having a chance to reflect on that here recently, I think has been huge, but also validating and exciting um, that um, we're hitting home with our message. Now, how do I up-level this message? How do I raise the bar um, to get folks to understand more advanced concepts while still making it easy to understand? Because I've already set an expectation that I can make security fun, engaging, exciting, and safe. Um, so I, I felt like that's, uh, it, it's just one way that has kind of proven to me that Cobalt's the right place for me, and it really fits my leadership style is that, you know, I'm able to make the impact that I set out to even within, you know, this first year that I've been here. It is so cool to look at that data uh, and to see how it's been changing um, and really be able to observe the impact that you and the security and IT team have made uh, to Cobalt. And it's been, it's been so good. Uh, and I'm so looking forward uh, to the next chapter uh, in Cobalt's journey. Ray, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast another time. For now, uh, we've got to wrap things up. I want to ask you a little bit about a white paper that you authored recently about scaling blue teams. Uh, can you tell our listeners, what is that white paper about? Who should be reading it? Uh, and what are some of the key takeaways? Absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I've had the the honor and the privilege of being a part and, and leading um, some fantastic security teams at uh, eBay, at Cisco Systems, Workday, Amazon, Proofpoint. And um, what I found along my journey is there was some consistent items that we needed to have, regardless of size, regardless of security maturity, that um, um, that played to our success, or that if we implemented early on, it was it was going to help us tell our stakeholders. Um, how much value the security team was providing. And so taking some of those um, items, there were a, a few that I found that were consistent. One of the first things that I found at organizations was that the, the teams who focused on capturing all of their inputs into a ticketing system had a, a baseline way to say, where are we spending our time? Um, where are security investments having the impact that we expect? And th th that was huge. And uh, that was one of the first things that I implemented when I got here at Cobalt for security so that we can better understand before we really started doing anything else, what the heck are people asking us to do? And uh, and that was consistent across Cobalt, which is still uh, over 100-person startup, to what we were doing back when I was at Amazon. Everything is about tickets, being able to track, categorize, and metrics. And I felt like that was huge. You know, there was 
an investment in preventative security. Um, I found that hugely consistent when I was at another security startup, Gainsight, or not a security startup, but a, secu- a startup, Gainsight. Um, investing in preventative security measures early on enabled our team to scale, especially when we're small and we're growing, um, and also building a vulnerability management program doing pen testing, doing vulnerability scanning, and operationalizing and working with your stakeholders to do patch management, that part was huge and um, hugely consistent in every single place that I've been, building an incident response plan, which I talked about, hugely valuable, um, regardless of company size, that has shown huge value because incidents aren't just for big companies, they can be at small companies as well and having a plan to respond, you know, I think was huge. And then, you know, continuing to grow uh, visibility over time um, with the data that you have. So many companies, you know, like us have workloads in the public cloud now. Uh, so security teams need to adapt to that. They need to understand what data feeds can I get from there? How do I operationalize that? Look for threats that are actionable for our team. And how do I grow that over time? And um, and so um, I packaged some of those. There were a few others, uh, key takeaways as well. But those are just some of the few that I found that were consistent across all different security organizations that I've been a part of that I wanted to bring back uh, to the security community for um, the leaders who are like me at eBay taking on their first security role and trying to figure out what the heck do I focus on now? It's just that little bit of guidance that I can give back to say, if you focus on just these key areas, this will not only enable you to do your job here in the short term, but it'll allow you to scale as you continue to grow and mature and invest in the security organization. And um, I'm excited to uh, share that white paper. I believe that uh, Blue Team Guide uh, will be out here shortly. But it was a lot of fun to write. And you know, I'd, I'd love for any feedback for anybody who uh, happens to read and has any questions, thoughts, or, uh, or any contradictory points of view. I, I would love to hear those as well. Fantastic. Uh, we'll make sure to include uh, a link to your white paper in the show notes uh, so that our listeners can access it. Um, and Ray, I just have to ask you before we go, I know that your family recently got a new puppy. How are things going with Sky? Sky's fantastic. Uh, it's been a little over, actually, it's coming up on two weeks now that um, we've had her. And um, she was pretty skittish early on. We spent a lot of time with her, giving her a lot of love and um, showing a lot of patience. And she's just already showing that back to us. And we love having her in the house. It is a bit of a change. You know, it's, it's changed some of our routines. Uh, we are getting everybody involved in getting her for walks outside. and. Um, and keeping up with, uh, you know, helping uh, keep her clean, keeping the house clean and the yard clean. Um, but it's it's been a fantastic addition. And we're, uh, we're super stoked to uh, have her as a part of our lives. And she's already in Espinoza. And uh, we love her. Yay, that's wonderful. Um, Ray, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for your leadership. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.